1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Ed McBride, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The number of people with HIV keeps growing worldwide as those infected with the virus that causes AIDS are surviving longer. We look at how the AIDS epidemic is evolving and the new challenges that presents. And the economy of Venezuela is in tatters. In response, growing numbers of Venezuelans are turning to video games, not out of escapism, but to make ends meet. First up, though, it is a tense time for Britain. The country is less than two weeks away from a general election contested largely over the pervasive issue of Brexit. But a terror attack hit London on Friday and pushed other long-standing concerns to the fore.
2: Guys, move out the
0: <laughs>
1: The attacker, Usman Khan, stabbed several people attending a conference on rehabilitation for prisoners before turning on members of the public near London Bridge. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, praised police and offered sympathies.
3: I think we're all very saddened also to learn that some people have been injured in this event and our sympathies are very much with them and with their loved ones.
1: Usman Khan was shot and killed by police at the scene. He had previously been convicted of terror offences and spent time in jail. Later, it was confirmed that two young lawyers, who participated in a prison education program, had been killed. The mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, sought to reassure
4: people. Well, in 2017, we had four four terrorist attacks uh, on our city. Uh, since then, because of the amazing work of our police, they are under-resourced and overstretched, our security services, but also the information provided by ordinary Londoners, uh,
1: we've thwarted more than 20 terrorist attacks uh, on, on our city. But the incident has prompted Brits to ask how terrorists should be punished and when reintegration into society is safe.
4: Usman Khan was 28. He was convicted in 2012 of his involvement in a plot to blow up London's stock exchange. Tom Rowley is a reporter on our Britain desk. He was given an indeterminate sentence then, which meant that he would stay behind bars until he was no longer judged to be a threat. But due to a whole series of changes to the law and an appeal in 2013, he ended up having to be released last December, um, which did not involve any determination about whether or not he was a risk to the public. It simply was that under this new law, he automatically had to be released. He was on licence, which meant that he was still tagged and could be monitored by the parole authorities and by the police. And so he apparently had to apply for special permission to travel to London last Friday to attend, of all things a conference on prisoner rehabilitation. So it, you mentioned he was being monitored and and he even
1: asked permission to come to London. Surely that, that would have been the moment where police
4: sh- should have intervene. Well, what went wrong? You might have thought so, particularly given that London Bridge was already the site of a, a previous terror attack in 2017. The trouble was that the policing uh, and uh, probation authorities simply don't have the resources to monitor every previous convicted terrorist r- round the clock. And so they have to make decision calls on on issues like this. And he he was safe enough to attend this particular conference. The Minister of Justice has already announced a review not only into this particular instance, but into 74 other convicted terrorists who have been released. That sounds right, doesn't it?
1: I mean, do we do we have any sense of whether there was... a a, a systematic problem? I mean, sure, you have to make
4: decisions, but but clearly the wrong one was made here. I mean, we we need to not rush to to judgment based on on one particular case, but sure, I mean, it, it seems like the wrong judgment call was made this time, and certainly... Politicians and civil servants are scrambling to, um, look at how to adjust the system in future and certainly looking into the whole question of de-radicalization and to what extent can you and how do you rehabilitate a terrorist? Several former prison and probation officials have already been drawing quite widespread conclusions from this incident, um, using it really to illustrate what they see as the defanging of the uh, rehabilitation system um, over the past 10 years. And uh, saying essentially that while the prison service might be quite used to bringing lags and rogues um, back into the mainstream, um, it doesn't really have yet expertise in terms of dealing with jihadists and other extremists and uh, trying to get them back on the straight and narrow. And, and do you think those
1: criticisms are justified? I mean, to t- tell us a little bit about the system, you know, by and large, does it work?
4: One of the big problems with the system is simply that staff of cash, like the police service, the probation service and the prison service, have faced stringent cuts in the last decade. So they simply have had to be doing more with less. Uh, I think those criticisms are justified, and in many cases, uh, these rehabilitation systems for terrorists have been described as simply box-ticking exercises. That that terrorists are saying that they have, you know, renounced their former sympathies without necessarily demonstrating that they've done so.
1: Well, what do politicians think is the solution? They, they've all been holding forth uh, about the attack. What, what are they suggesting?
4: Boris Johnson was very quick to go on the offensive.
3: I've said for, for a long time now that I think that the practice of automatic early release where you cut a sentence in half and let really serious violent defenders out early simply isn't working.
4: I think in part because he recognises that the, the Tories have been in government for the last decade and that this could have been politically quite toxic for him because of the effectively the austerity measures that the Tories have presided over. Jeremy Corbyn, on the other hand, has been very critical uh, of the the Tories' cuts to the prison service. The the opposition Labour leader has long uh, argued for more investment in public services. I think we have to ensure that the public are safe. That means supervision of prisoners in prison, but it also means supervision of ex-prisoners when they're released ahead of the completion of their sentence. But uh, on this crucial question of whether terrorists should be released early, he's prevaricated somewhat and said that they shouldn't automatically have to serve their full sentences. Understandably, one of the victim's families has already asked politicians to refrain from turning it into a political issue. Unfortunately, it already has become one. And more broadly, beyond the election, this is bound to affect
1: British people's view of how best to deal with uh, extremists former extremists w-
4: w- what do you think the likely fallout is Britain among other European countries is already grappling with the issue of how to deal with citizens who've gone to fight for the Islamic State and, and gone to try and build that caliphate, who want to return to the country, and especially in the case of, of women and their children, whether or not they ought to be repatriated. That already is not terribly popular with British politicians, particularly the Tory party and the public, and it's unlikely that this attack will make that uh, any more popular, it's also quite likely, I think, that, they, that the Tories will use this to clamp down on borders more generally. And it will, uh, unfortunately, in Britain at the moment, all roads lead to Brexit. And, uh, and even on this topic, I think that the, the Tories will, will uh, argue that uh, after Brexit, they'll be able to clamp down and seal Britain's borders uh, even more. Of course, all of that is somewhat ironic, given that Mr. Khan is the latest in a long line of homegrown terrorists. And none of this automatically seems to point to borders or to a wider global issues. But nonetheless, uh, that's where the political debate is heading. Tom, uh, thank you very much for
1: explaining it to us. Thank you.
0: Ready to pop the question?
1: On Sunday, campaigners marked World AIDS Day, an effort to mobilise support in the fight against HIV. Globally, nearly 37 million people are thought to have the virus. More than 35 million people have died because of HIV or AIDS since it was discovered in 1984. Huge progress has been made in diagnosis and treatment. A world without HIV or AIDS is foreseeable. The global fight against AIDS is going I would say reasonably well. Jeffrey Carr is The Economist's science and technology editor.
3: Obviously, people are still dying in unacceptable numbers, but the numbers are falling. And that, considering that we knew nothing about this disease several decades ago, is the result of better scientific understanding of the illness itself and the manufacture of drugs that will deal with it. Can you give us a sense of the numbers? So How, how many people are infected, whether that's rising or falling? Well, the number of people infected will continue to rise indefinitely, uh, but that's paradoxically a good thing because the number infected is rising because people are dying less we don't have a cure for AIDS. Once you're infected, you stay infected. But because we have decent drugs, it's possible to keep people who are infected alive indefinitely, probably as long as they would have lived otherwise. Therefore, inevitably, the number of people who are infected will climb. It's just under 40 million now, I think about 38 million. The numbers, again, are somewhat uncertain because most people who are infected live in fairly poor countries where the data collection is not very good. What is the medical profession, the World Health Organization, and so on, what are they doing to
1: to fight AIDS? How, that, how has the shape of the fight changed?
3: I mean, obviously, those organizations are important, but the, the real shape of the fight is through the organizations which distribute the drugs. So, the important thing to understand about AIDS, as I said, uh, it, there is no cure. But we have drugs which will stop the virus replicating. So you can be infected without suffering symptoms. And also, equally importantly, if you take the drugs as prescribed, you are extremely unlikely to pass the virus on to anybody else. So the important part of the equation is actually the organisations which are gathering the money to pay for the drugs and distributing them. How is that? effort then to, to get
1: the drugs to all people infected with AIDS? How how has that been going?
3: It's been going very well. The drugs themselves became available in the late 1990s. That's when they were invented. And at the beginning, they were extremely expensive, which is understandable. But the price has come down quite fast. And there have been various initiatives to ramp up the distribution, particularly in poor countries. It's important to remember that AIDS is largely a problem in sub-Saharan Africa and mostly countries which can ill afford the drugs themselves. And there have been three branded attempts to in- increase the thing. The One was called 3x5, which started in 2003 and was to get 3 million people on the drugs by 2005. and That uh, succeeded. And then another one was called 15 by 15 Same idea, 15 million people by 2015. And the most recent one, which we're in the middle of now is called 909090 and that's a more complex idea 90% of the people who are actually infected should know they are infected because that is the first step towards treatment and then 90% of those should be on treatments and 90% of those people who are on treatment should actually have the virus suppressed to the point where there's no risk of them suffering symptoms the idea was to get this done by next year it's extremely unlikely that that target will be met but it may well be met a year or two afterwards so it's probably a case of having an ambitious target and if you miss the target by a year or two well it doesn't really matter
0: My name is Laura Trivino-Duran. I'm a medical doctor, and I have been working in Southern Africa for the last 14 years, all that time with Medicines and Frontiers.
1: More than half the people currently living with HIV are in East and Southern Africa, but that's also one of the areas of the world where the virus is proving hardest to diagnose and treat.
0: In South Africa, we have really walked a long road and things are much, much better than they were, let's say, 20 years ago. But what I see on my daily practice, uh, not only in South Africa, but also in Malawi, Lesotho, Uganda, in many places where I have been working is that the number of patients that are dying are still unacceptable. Now people in most of these countries, they have access to, to the drugs. The problem is that they interrupt treatment because, you know, after a long time being, on therapy things happen and you know those countries are very poor people don't have food and they have a lot of other worries and that's very complicated because that means that patients are being exposed they develop resistance and it's much more complicated to treat them.
1: Give us a sense of who the people are that are undetected cases or people that are hard to reach you know the populations that you're working with
0: in the different places where we work, we are normally targeting the general population and especially young women. Women from 15 to 25 years old, they are very vulnerable. And this is where we see the major number of incident cases. New cases happens during that age and especially in young women. So this is a very vulnerable population. And we also try to focus on men because we know men are very hard to reach. They don't access the health facilities the same as old woman do. So this is a priorities. But aside of that, we have what we call key populations. And among those, the most important are men that have sex with men, sex workers, transgender, prisoners, all these people, they have also a huge difficulties to access health services because the stigma related to their identity.
1: So overall, are you optimistic?
0: I think that we need to change things in the sense that it's not acceptable that if you go to a primary health care facility in Africa and you are not able to diagnose tuberculosis and, you know, there is another disease called cryptococcal meningitis that is the second cause of mortality on HIV patients. The first one is tuberculosis, and we have tools that we can use in order to diagnose it in one hour in front of the patient. The patient doesn't have to go anywhere and you could give the diagnosis and guess what? Those diagnostic tools are not available. If we have them, then we will be able to do it. If we have therapy that we need to treat the diseases that we know that they kill people, we could do it. But guess what? We don't have them. So those things have to change. Otherwise, the number of cases that die, they won't reduce in the way we should because we need to prevent deaths from the primary healthcare level to prevent them to go to the hospitals. So if we do that, I'm very optimistic. And I think we are doing things very well, but we still need to reinforce uh, a lot uh, the care for advanced HIV for people that are very sick.
1: Jeff, do you expect to see the end of AIDS in your lifetime?
3: AIDS, yes, because there is an important distinction here. We use the term AIDS a bit loosely. AIDS is actually the symptomatic disease. You can be HIV positive, have the virus in your body and not suffer from AIDS. And that's the important point. That's what the drugs are for. The drugs keep you symptom free. I think there's a reasonable chance I might live long enough to see the end of AIDS as a symptomatic illness. I don't think I will outlive the last person who is carrying the virus because they are obviously going to be several decades younger than I am. Jeff, thanks very much for your time. Thank you.
1: Venezuela's economy is in tatters amid a deepening political crisis. Rather than find poorly paid jobs, many of the country's residents are now spending their days playing video games instead. But it's not for the reasons you might think.
2: The situation in Venezuela is really dire, and as a result, a lot of Venezuelans are turning to video games. They're farming virtual gold within the game and then selling that gold for real money.
1: Noor Abraham writes about video games for The Economist.
2: Venezuelans can make about $40 a month in a country where the minimum wage is somewhere around $750 a month. So Noor, explain, what is gold farming? The practice involves playing online multiplayer video games. A typical gamer might interact within these games by playing quests, slaughtering monsters, but the experience of gold farmers is perhaps a little different. They tend to isolate themselves, work in secrecy, and their main objective is to make as much money as possible. Players go on to third-party websites and will sell virtual gold from those websites to players that are interested in purchase. They will go into areas of the game, avoiding interaction with other players and mass murdering these dragons, collecting the remains, selling them on the virtual market to exchange them for real-world cash.
1: And why has this practice become so big in Venezuela?
2: The economic situation in Venezuela is quite bad. The Venezuelan bolivar is projected to have 200,000% inflation by IMF projections. And as a result, this has motivated a lot of Venezuelans to play video games as a means to earn a wage. So who are the people who are playing these video games? Many of the gold farmers in Venezuela are people of all ages, from teenagers, adults, and even the elderly are playing this game, not as a means to have fun or enjoy themselves, but seriously taking it as a way to to make money in a country where the economic situation is so dire.
1: This rush of Venezuelans uh, into gold farming, is it changing the games that they're playing?
2: Just like a typical marketplace, many video games have marketplaces where you can buy food and armor and weapons and prices tend to fluctuate like a, like a floating exchange. Gold farming has a significant impact on these games' virtual economies, and it does have an impact on the community's morale as well. There has been a case a couple of years ago where a Reddit user wrote a vitriolic guide on how to attack Venezuelan players in areas where multiplayer combat is permitted, and this has been detrimental to Venezuelans As a Venezuelan that is killed in these multi-combat areas, it tends to have an impact on what kind of money they're able to bring in during that day because they are losing all of their items that they bring in are at risk. What do the companies that make these games think about this trend? Game developers are not a fan of the practice. Many ban them explicitly, but many of them also turn a blind eye to the sort of behavior. For the developers that uh, disapprove of the practice, they tend to disapprove on it on a proprietary ground. They believe that the items within the game are sort of offered to these players on a revocable permission. The practice also tends to increase the inflation within the game's economy. That said, the economy is not nearly as impacted in terms of inflation as Venezuela's own economy.
1: Thank you very much for explaining all of that to us, Noor. No problem. That's all from us on The Intelligence. But we'd like to know more about you and what you think of the show. Do us a favor and head over to economist.com slash podsurvey. See you back here tomorrow.